The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by Kingsters for Kingsters, Poly, Queer, Transfolk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. Featuring personalities as their authentic selves, this is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. It's an intimate conversation with people inside the kink and fetish worlds, as well as educators, sex-positive personalities, and other amazing people sharing their stories of what makes them who they are. And now, here is our own wonderful human with the questions, John or as he is known around the kink and fetish community. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie. It is an extreme joy to welcome a legend back to the program. She was part of one of our very first shows when she joined us for a pre-election special to discuss kink and the fact that she ran against Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. And while she may not have won that race, she has been a pillar of the Dom community who is back in action dominating men and honoring women with the same great energy. Mistress Tara Indiana has been a professional and lifestyle dominatrix, BDSM educator, and political activist for over 30 years. In the course of that time, she's dominated over 10,000 men taught more than 1,000 professional dominatrixes, and starred in over 200 fetish films, ran for president in 2016, and is the founder of the Den of Iniquity Dungeon and Dominatrixes Against Donald, and most recently, the Dominatrix Hall of Fame. When Tara is not trying to unseat a sitting president, she is teaching women how to dominate men through her workshop series, The Art of Female Domination. AFD offers women from all walks of life the opportunity to learn the way a professional dominatrix learns, hands-on. Her science-based empirical approach has been featured on BuzzFeed, Salon, LA Weekly, Los Angeles Magazine, Vice, TEDx San Francisco, and the UC Irvine School of Medicine. Following the devastation of the pandemic that closed so many dungeons, Mistress Tara realized it was necessary to better document the history of the Dominatrix. And that's how the Dominatrix Hall of Fame was born at DomCon 2021 she hopes to continue honoring the legends of female domination that paved the way for the next generation for many years to come. Tara Indiana on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Mm -hmm. 
are the questions that establish the story. Five questions about firsts, bringing back the genesis of the character behind the human. It's the first five, and it starts now. Can you remember the first dominatrix you ever trained and what your feeling was when you did it? Geez, there have been a lot. I guess technically there were probably actually two, and those would have been uh, Mistress London and Miss Page. And they were uh, the two women that I started the original Den of Iniquity with in 1994. I met them um, in a strip club where we were all working. And, um, and they were both so different. Um, and actually, now that I'm sort of saying it out loud, I realized that they kind of represented what you're always kind of dealing with when you train a new dom. Because usually, because I mean, women in general are, you know, conditioned to be not always, but uh, often conditioned to be, you know, pleasing and demure and uh, accommodating uh, and to nurture. And in some ways, it is kind of, um, uh, it, it might seem that sadism uh, and dominance doesn't go with that, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have that one group of women that need to, you need to sort of bring them out of their shell. You need to sort of say, it's okay. He'll use his safe word if he needs it. He's a, he's a grown ass man. He can handle it. You know, so some doms need to be kind of pushed, uh, pushed outside their comfort in that area. Then other doms like Mistress London, they need to be reined in a little bit. Mm. <laughs> um, they are delighted. They've been told all their lives that they're bitchy, that they're bossy, that they're this, that they're that, and they need to you know, not be that or whatever. And now they've found a profession where they can just let that all just hang out, right? Um, and they need to be reined in a little bit. You know, um, they usually don't have good body language, uh, the ability to read body language that well. Um, they can't like intuit just from, you know, the body language of the submissive that they're reaching their max. They have to hear the safe word. And you don't really want that. You know, if, if the slave is using a safe word, then not always, but a lot of the time something has gone wrong, right? Um, you know, so uh, Paige was um, actually kind of naturally submissive. Um, but not and this is something that i've always said women are not really submissive the same way that men are like a woman who wants to be my submissive is not going to come over here and clean my dungeon mm. you understand what i'm saying mm -hmm. um I, of course there's always an exception to the rule maybe out there somewhere is a genuine service submissive female that wants to clean my bathroom i haven't found one yet it's usually more about them and i found that Men aren't really dominant in the same way either. Usually like when um, a man is into dominating a woman, it's more, it's, I find that they're actually worshiping the um, sort of the symbol of the damsel in distress. Mm. 
they're they're actually almost submissive to that powerful image of the damsel in distress you know so Paige was more that way she was better able to work the that kind of energy kind of coquettish topping from the bottom um kind of ruling with a pouty lip and a batting eyelash <laughs> where London was gonna she was gonna fuck you up you know um she was a sadist uh, a humiliatrix and uh she really wanted to you know kind of take him to the limit so it was really kind of interesting those being kind of the first doms um that I trained and just sort of talking about it out loud now and realizing how much it's still uh, informing um, the way I teach and, and, and um, how I work uh, with different kinds of students. Cause it's always like a, it's kind of like a Goldilocks thing. You know, you, you, you don't want to be, you know, it's, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. You know, is sort of what, where you want to bring your strictness uh, and, your strictness, that's where you define your boundaries and learn to enforce them. And, you know, enforcing a boundary, it involves the right amount of force. You mm -hmm. know, if you push a boundary too hard, it's a wall, right? And you're just keeping people out. But if your boundaries aren't, you know, are, are too soft, then you know, you're going to expose yourself to all kinds of dangers and stuff. So it's like finding that sweet spot and sort of getting to learn what is the correct amount of force for what your goals are in your domination. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. First time you produced for Gotham Gold and how you knew you were making a difference in the way fetish porn was done. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so when I, this is hard for modern doms to imagine, but in my day, a reputable and well-respected professional dominatrix would never do film. Hmm. Um, all the S&M porn from pre, I'd say 1997, 96 maybe, it's all porn actors. Um, and it's uh, and sometimes they're into it and sometimes they're not. Um, and because of that, um, it, my first experiences in porn were really interesting. Um, uh, you were basically if you did, uh, it, it was just looked at lower than. I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously it has to do with the hierarchy and all that kind of stuff. Like you know, and there's always a lot of like language and S and M about a real dom and what a real dom is, you know? Uh, lost my train of thought. Where was I going down this rabbit hole? We were talking about fetish porn and how you were changing the look oh, of fetish it was. porn. Yeah. So um, I knew I wanted to do it because I wanted to reach a broader market and I, I knew I would reach a broader, and, and what I wanted to ultimately do is I wanted to transition into mainstream porn to reach an even broader market. So Gotham was like the biggest fetish film company that was left on the East Coast. And um, so basically um, because, so a lot of the male actors that played subs in those days, basically they were usually, I, I'm sorry, it's not a, I'm trying to find the nice way to say it. Okay, I'm not gonna say it the nice way. Um, they were basically washed up porn stars that couldn't get wood anymore. So mm. they couldn't get cast. Yeah. 
Uh, this is before, um, uh, or what you would call it, the, the medications we have now. Um, and Viagra and such, yes. And so not only weren't they into this, but they, they, they had a deep resentment about being there very often. And so what you had to learn how to do as a dom was you had to learn, you learned how to do a bunch of stuff that looked painful that wasn't because a lot of them weren't really like into it, right? Um, but like Gotham had like a really rich history. Um, a lot of big porn stars of that time, uh, you know, back in the day had all started there. Portia Lynn, Rick Savage, like all the sort of um, the porn stars from the golden age of porn, they'd all started in Gotham and most of them moved to the West Coast when the porn industry moved there, but Gotham stayed behind. Um, and it was really a mill. And what I mean by a mill is you would go in there, you would work probably a 12 hour day and each person would produce a, a like a four one hour videos. And they just had a set. They had the actors down in the basement and it was like this Italian family. So they had this huge Italian spread, which we'd always be upset about because it would make us fat. And <laughs> um, they would just call you up. You know, you go up, do your hour, you come down, someone else would come up and do their hour. And like most people were just looking to get their paycheck and get the fuck out of there. But I was an artiste, you know, I really wanted to do something. And like, I remember I had all these ideas about like, I didn't want to be that porn star with the pimply ass, you know? So I like, I, I remember like um, uh, putting like, you know, makeup all over my ass just to make sure <laughs> there weren't going to be any pimples or anything. And I mean, I really went, you know, all out with my wardrobe, which I always did during my film career. Like you'll never see Mistress Tara in the same outfit in twice in an S&M film. And, you know, so I'm spending all this time getting ready you know, and you know, thinking about like, you know, what I'm doing and what this means and how I'm going to put it out there. And I come up on the set and there's three other people on the set. And, um, and I said to the director, Vince Benedetti, who I, I became good friends with later. Okay. Okay. So what's my motivation in this scene, Vince? And he <laughs> said, okay, this is what's going to happen. You are going to dominate him and him and her go. And that was his direction. That was it, right? That was it. Um, and, um, you know, and I, there were other wonderful directions like that, that at the time seemed um, wrong uh, and like someone who didn't really understand SM. But I, I realized later that he was right. And I'll give you a couple of examples of this. So, you know, so I do the scene. And um, so there were two male actors in the scene. One of them who was, you know, a washed up porn star who couldn't get wood anymore. And the other one actually, they would every now and then get a genuine submissive. The other one was a genuine submissive. And I was really big into uh, smoking fetish and cigarette torture and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I'm on the set and um, there's a cut in between scenes and Vince pulls me over and he puts his arm around my shoulder and he goes, okay, okay, you see that guy over there, that guy over there? You could do anything you want to that guy. You could fuck him up. You can burn him. You can do anything you want. He can take it, you know. And so I'm all excited, right? I'm like, great. I'm going to do a smoking scene with him. But I misunderstood who he was pointing to. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. 
he was pointing to um, the guy that was the porn star with the muscled body who couldn't get wood anymore. And I go in to do the smoking scene with him. And, you know, it's very intense and it's per and I'm blowing smoke in his face and he's coughing, but he's taking it and ashing in his mouth. And the whole set goes dead silent while this is going on because they know, but they don't want to cut, right? They know and just dead silence. And then when the scene was over, it erupted, it, like everyone was still silent and he kind of coughed and he goes, oh my God, that was the hottest thing I've ever done. But I have to tell you, I'm a health food, I'm a health food nut. I don't smoke and I, I, I hate secondhand smoke and I don't, so anyway, it worked out okay. But here he was, he was this like um, gym rat who like, that was just the worst, you oh, know? Wow. But I was so sexy about it that it wound up being this hot scene and that everybody was like clapping and everything like that. And then um, the next scene comes up and I think I'm doing my thing. And I think everything's going real well because I'm used to sessions which are different and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, and then all of a sudden goes, Vince goes, okay, okay, talk, okay. Here's what you're gonna do now. Put a gas mask on him and put some clothespins on his balls. That's what they wanna see, the clothespins on the balls. And anyway, so, and I, of course, am really offended about this. But later on, when I saw the videos, I realized he was right. And uh, it was something else that I also learned about by watching my films after I had done them later. In S&M, if you want to make it really se sexy and hot in real time, it's about slowing everything. <laughs> it's about bringing your voice down. <laughs> it's about talking very very deliberately about the things that you want, you know, and it's about slowing down your movements, you know, because a predator moves slowly, right? But in film, that is boring as fuck. You can't see it, especially, especially like with the quality of the, the shoots that they're doing, you know, because that's about tight shots and on the face, right? And so when he said cut, put some clothespins on his balls, he was right. It was slow. It was boring. No one could see what I was doing and I needed to change it up. So um, those were my sort of early experiences with uh, a shooting film at Gotham Gold and um, working with the infamous and illustrious Vince Benedetti. <laughs> the first time you were called the Martha Stewart of Dungeons, what was your reaction? Oh, I thought that was awesome. I couldn't have been happier. I, I didn't know that that's what I was going for, but she nailed it. That was how my first dungeon was. It was all, it was all done in antiques of various time periods. Uh, so if you walked in, it just looked like sort of a, you know, an eclectic apartment. But everything was rigged for bondage. Uh, everything had a a second purpose, and that kind of lulled you into this false sense of that nothing bad was going to happen to you here. You know, and that was sort of my first dungeon. Um, so, and that was really interesting too, because when she did that article, she, um, 
this is true. Um, that writer actually approached me and did a session with me. She wanted to like really be a journalist. Okay. Yeah. So she actually did a session with me and it was one of my first sessions, not my only, but one of my first sessions with just a single woman by herself. And it was really interesting to see just how, to, how um, you know, she was just able to kind of open up in this scene and, you know, really um, access a different part of herself. Um, and then it was really fun to, to read the, the story that she wrote about it. It was really fun. Um, but yes, I was the Martha Stewart of Dungeons. <laughs> What was it like, and I rarely ask a follow-up on a first five question, but when you read the article and got to see her perspective on it, did it open up your eyes to something a little different, or was it exactly what you expected? Well, it opened up my eyes a bit to her, and this is something we actually talked about after the session. Like, when the session started... I could feel she was, was shameful. She had shame around her body, the way she was holding her body, um, her shoulders kind of, you know, trying to be very small. And how the, the BDSM process just got her to open up, like her posture was just even changed by the end of the session. She was like holding her shoulders straight and back. It wasn't something I told her to do. It's just something that happened as she started to feel more comfortable in her body. And I think what allowed that for her was probably the bondage. Um, one of the things that surprises a lot of people the first time they're in bondage is often their reaction is, I feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so feeling safe in your body um, allows you to kind of open up and kind of show that body and not feel vulnerable. In, not that being, feeling vulnerable isn't a part of it, but not feeling vulnerable in that shameful way. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? I remember saying to Amanda Wildfire after she and Queen P had put me in to a latex body bag that it was the greatest freedom I had ever felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, because once you're once you lost the ability to move, you're forced to stop making a number of decisions, right? And that quiets your mind. And there's a freedom in not being able to make those decisions for a period of time it lets your mind refocus on something else so it's very meditative first time you considered making the den of iniquity a chain that went from coast to coast oh oh i have to say probably the minute uh i started portion i was working with portia lynn mm -hmm. Um, how it started is I was working with Portia Lynn. She used to come out and feature at my dungeon in New York, um, you know, when she was in town and, and we developed a friendship uh, and a working relationship. And she had this little dungeon out 
in Phoenix that she was just using for herself. And it just seemed like it would be so easy to just start, um, you know, instead of her just coming to visit us, for us to start sending other women from the Den of Iniquity to her place to feature and do sessions. Um, and that's sort of how it sort of organically grew. You know, we started with her, with her place. And um, we started, you know, and, and that was just sort of a, a natural thing to do. She had a really good following there. It was a good market. Um, and then I started um, traveling to LA for the film industry because most of the film industry was in Los Angeles. It wasn't in New York. And I knew if I really wanted to expand my my reach as a dominatrix and read a, and reach a broader audience that I would um, have to go out to LA. And so initially I was just coming out, out to LA um, for, you know, uh, you know, to do film, but I was getting enough work that it quickly seemed to make sense to rent an apartment um, rather than to spend all this money in a hotel. And then I could just leave my stuff there. And then I started sessioning there, right? Then I started sessioning there and I start, I did start bringing girls out, but I didn't do like officially the den of iniquity. And then one day I was walking down fourth street and I saw a for rent sale on uh, what turned out to be a three bedroom, 2,400 square foot house. And I looked at it. I just knew it would be like perfect to do mm -hmm. another dungeon. Um, but, you know, I was married at the time um, and uh, and I remember I checked in with my husband and he was always super supportive and he was just like, yeah, go for it. And so I did. And so, so sort of the rest is kind of history. But that's sort of how it came together. I, I don't know that I, part of it was a little bit of a vision in that I was aware of the problem of sort of getting and keeping the, the top talent. I wanted to be able to keep like the top, I wanted to have just the premier dominatrices at my place, you know? And you know, if somebody's really like a, a rock star, they're gonna eventually wanna go on their own. Um, so part of it was, well, if I franchise, then I can offer mobility within my business. Like mm -hmm. people can come here and know that it's not a, like a dead end that they could uh, wind up being the headmistress of a dungeon in uh, a different market and um, have the benefit of, you know, the branding um, that I had developed. So part of it was that. So I'd say it was sort of a combination of those two things. That's how I wound up owning a chain of dungeons. First time you had a session after the pandemic. How amazing was it to finally be able to do it again? Well, do you want the first session back or the panicked session that I did during this pandemic? A little bit of both, if you will. A little bit of both. So what probably a lot of people don't know is uh, POA, the Pandemic Assistance, uh, had language in the CARE Act that... Um, excluded all sex workers. And when I say that it excluded all sex workers, I mean that if you worked in a vibrator factory assembling vibrators, you were a sex worker. Mm -hmm. So that, that was language in the, in the, in the, in, that came out early. And I had been an educator who taught amongst many things. 
spitting on people. I mean, this was my line of work was over when the pandemic mm -hmm. hit, you know, and I immediately lost all my income. Um, and I wasn't sure that I would be able to get the, the, the PUA. And I remember doing a panicked session um, uh, a survival. And, and it, it was really interesting for me because in fairness, I was never really a survival sex worker. Um, uh, and so I, I luckily did not have some of the experiences that you have when you do survival sex work, right? And this was like the first, and here I was in my 50s doing survival sex work for the first time. And it was a guy that had been at a class a couple of weeks before. And I remember I charged a ridiculous amount of money. And I remember putting on my N95 mask and I had a face shield and I get there and I'm wearing a corset and, and boots and high heels and I'm doing cross-dressing session with some guy in his garage, like literally in his garage. Like I didn't even go in through the house. He opened the garage door, it was in his gym. And I was like, what is my life? What is that? You know, I mean, it was pretty nuts. But what was interesting was it made me remember how much I love doing sessions because I actually, because I was from the old school, I had pretty much retired from doing sessions between the ages of 35 and that date that I did mm. that panic session. I mean, obviously, you know, I have, you know, my regulars that I still see over the year. But being a sessioning dom, advertising and screening someone and doing all that stuff, I hadn't done that in a long, long time. And maybe remember how much I loved it. And it made me reflect on, you know, that it was foolish to stop sessioning when I did. And then when the pandemic was over, that I would probably continue doing sessions. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, I guess, gets to my first session back from the pen. I was... Uh, itching to play. I was itching to teach. Um, teaching was primarily what I missed during the pandemic. My first session back was uh, a regular of mine who I have continued to see, but he's a regular that I met through teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a heavy medical and invasive scene. And uh, it was just so good to, you know, to, to be in that space and to be playing again and to have him in my new space. Um, and uh, it was a really great set. I mean, it was all the things I love. It was like sounds and piercings and catheters and, uh, you know, all the, all those wicked kind of things. And um, he's, an, he's, he's um, in some ways a traditional medical slave in that when he was young, um, he had medical problems and that sort of like Bob Flanagan and had kind of fetishized them. So there was, there's also a really kind of nurturing component to doing medical scenes with him because as I'm doing these cruel and wicked things, I'm also holding his hand mm -hmm. and stroking his head very soothingly and telling him he's doing such a good job. He's, doing it so well and it's just going to be a little more you know and this is just for your own good and sort of holding that space for him being the nurturing but cruel nurse you know that was super fun 
Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, since then I put myself out there again and I am doing sessions again, uh, actively, which is, which is new and exciting. And it's interesting to see like some of the new fetish trends that I see happening now again, as I'm more actively sessioning, because there are trends. And when you're in the industry for a long time, you see them. Final question of the first five. The moment you thought of the Dominatrix Hall of Fame. Oh, the pandemic did that. During the pandemic, we saw the closing of the last of the dungeons. Um, and this has been a slow roll downhill for a while. Um, for your viewers who, who may not know about sort of the business models, um, Pre-internet, um, uh, there were multi-mistress dungeons where a dominatrix would work and be on staff and they'd be on shift, you know, eight hours a day. Um, and um, that business model um, has pretty much been destroyed by the internet. And um, the last places that were like that, um, what's left of them, were sort of wiped out by the internet. Um, and, you know, the advantage of working in a dungeon was they did everything for you. They took care of the advertising, if there was a legal problem, the lawyers, all the back end stuff. All you had to do was show up and have your outfit. That's it. You didn't have to have gear, nothing. Um, but that meant you had to share your money with somebody else. You had to work shift, you, you didn't have the flexibility of an independent mistress, sessions were booked for you. And, you know, certainly at my dungeon, uh, um, you know, you could say no to a session and most dungeons would let you do that, but it's not the same as you individually screening and, and choosing who you see and who you don't see, right? But the problem with losing that model and the independent model now is mistresses are independent and they either rented a dungeon by the hour, like if they have a client, they'll pay whatever it is and they'll do the session and they'll leave um, or they have their own dungeon. Um, and of course they have more independence. They set their own hours, they pick and choose all that stuff, but they also have to do all the back end. And if there's a legal problem, they have to pay for the lawyer, bail themselves out. They have to worry about all that stuff. And the other thing that was lost that's not as obvious is when you work at a dungeon, there's institutional memory the institutional memory of that place. So if you, and the modern dominatrix, because these dungeons have been pretty much put in business, a lot of the new mistresses have never worked in house. And what happens when you work in house is a couple of things. First of all, uh, you hear a phone girl talking on the, guy, on the phone with guys all day long, eight hours a day, you're hearing her answer the phone, what she says, what she doesn't say, um, you know, how she screams and, and you hear the phone rap all day, all day, all day. And eventually what happens is that phone girl will go to the bathroom, the phone will ring. And you've been hearing her do it so long, you just pick up the phone and you can do it too. You understand? So you've learned how to scream just sitting there, right? So I can't replicate that in a class, right? Just to give you an idea of how hard it is to be a phone girl at a dungeon, um, when I trained a, a mistress, I'm sorry, not a mistress, but a phone girl at the Den of Iniquity, um, she would listen to me answer the phone for two weeks to a month 
before I would let her pick up a call. Then we'd spend another two weeks to a month of me grabbing the phone out of her hand every time she fucked up because her fucking up could get us all busted. You understand? And then I would let her and I'd watch and then eventually maybe after three months, she'd be good enough to work on her own. I can't teach that in a class. The other thing you have in a dungeon is something called the mistress's lounge. That would basically be a locker room, usually with a closet where you would hang out in between sessions and get dressed. And I really, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the mistress's lounge was the heart of the dungeon. Because what the mistress's lounge provides, in addition to being able to hear the phone girl, who's usually in earshot, is if you have a bad session, when you come out of that session, there's a room full of women who understands exactly how you feel. And they're there to support, you know, you know, not always there to support you, but on some level, they're to support you, right? You also can share stories and learn and from other mistresses. And in the multi-mistress dungeon, you have opportunities to do multi-mistress sessions that you can't do now. Now, if you do a multi-mistress session, you got to coordinate it with five people's schedules. It's a mm-hmm. whole thing. Well, in the old days, a guy could call up the dungeon, book a session and do two, three, four, five mistress sessions, same day. And so you had those opportunities. And so... All of that is gone. A dungeon where you're just doing dungeon rentals that doesn't have a mistress's lounge has no heart. Mm -hmm. It literally has heart. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just a different thing. And so when I saw the last of them go, what, cause what I really, cause I know, for example, that I might, and this is not me being arrogant. It just is. I'm the institutional memory of the, of the dominatrix business going back about 40 years or more in New York and about 20 in LA, because even though I've only been in the business for 30, when I came into the business, I had friends that were other dungeon owners that had been in the business for 26 Mm -hmm. years who told me the stories of their day. And I carry those stories with me. I am this institutional memory. And when I'm gone, it goes with me. And each of those dungeons has the same story when they're gone. All that memory has gone with them. And so I felt it was really important, particularly because there is a BDSM Hall of Fame, and that's important too. But I felt it was really important that there was specifically a dominatrix Hall of Fame because our history is just not documented. It is not out there. Like, for example, there is not one living or real dominatrix on Wikipedia. Not one. Mm. because institutional biases against alpha females or dominant women or women who are assertive. There's porn stars on Wikipedia. There's bondage masters on Wikipedia. All kinds of things. Not one dominatrix. Wow. Not one. Uh, The only book about us, there is a book called The History of the Dominatrix that was written that's very good, but it's about, it's most, it's written by an English woman. So it mostly covers like the European continent. It doesn't cover that much of American doms. Um, And so, you know, I thought this would be uh, a good next phase of my career. So um, that's what I'm leaning into. We're doing it again this year. This will be our third year. Um, and uh, basically what I did was I, I grew it from my Legends panel. Have you been to my Legends panel at DomCon? I have not been to DomCon yet. 
I'm hoping to go soon. So, yeah, so it's years ago. I think I've been doing the Legends panels probably like in its seventh or eighth year. It's a panel I do at DomCon, and it's called Legends of Female Domination. And actually, let me... um, And let me actually see if I can... um, No, I don't want to go on my computer right now. Uh, But the idea of the panel was this. We gather together... uh, seven generations of dominatrixes. We have representatives of doms in their 20s, doms in the 30s, doms in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and sometimes we get 80s, we're lucky. And each dom uh, comes representing their generation. Um, The 20 year olds or the ones that are in their 20s are called the baby dom category. They're technically (laughs) not considered, they're considered most likely to become a legend. and uh, they answer, but everyone asks answers two questions. Um, the first question is the story of their first professional session. And I qualify their first professional session as being any time where you were in a session with a man who was paying, where you both knew that he was paying you to dominate him. Mm-hmm. Could have been in a strip club, backseat of your car. I don't care where, but you were both conscious that this was what you were doing. Um, so they tell that story. And then the second one is a dominatrix tall tale. And that is a, uh, a tale so tall that only another dominatrix would believe that that actually <laughs> happened. Um, and then we have uh, usually a topic of discussion uh, for that year. But the idea is to give different to, is to give people perspectives of, of what the pro domination industry has looked like over the years, what's the same, what's changed, and you know that kind of stuff. And so, what I'm doing with the Hall of Fame initially is I'm just building on that. So um, right now, I'm just inducting all the people uh, who qualify. To qualify, you have to have 20 years in the industry. Uh, with an exception for people who die before they have a chance to hit 20 years. And you it's not just that you have to be a successful and world-renowned dom. It's that you have to have made the industry a little better than how you found it when you came in to really be a legend uh, and to get into the Hall of Fame. So initially, we're inducting... Um, all the people who have been in in the past, and we're doing a, like a lot of posthumous inductions, and the posthumous inductions are important. But the posthumous inductions also saved me a little money um, <laughs> because I really wanted the Hall of Fame to give like cool prizes. So if you're a living dom, you get the golden whip. This is hand gold leaf single tail, and it's. Um, uh, it's a nod to Wonder Woman's golden lasso of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they each get one of those. Those are custom made and our uh, induction certificates are hand calligraphied. Um, so here's my fundraising thing. So um, if you go to Dominat- uh, if you go to the Dominatrix Hall of Fame on Instagram, you will see my cash app. And if you would like to make a donation, uh, any donation is appreciated, but uh, each each donation of 200 gives me the ability to induct one living dominatrix into the Hall of Fame. So for so if you want and you can even sponsor some, you know, you can even be a sponsor of that dom, you know. Um, so if you want to contribute, um, that's definitely a way that you can.
awesome. And we have just started in a wonderful set of wonderful stories from Mistress Terra, Indiana. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the initial inductees to the Dominatrix Hall of Fame when we come back on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dave and Kinky. We do this show without paid advertisers and provide it to you as a labor of love. If you want to help the show, as well as contribute to Catsuit's conference fund to get live interviews and teach some amazing classes, you can give at bit.ly slash thanks, Catsuit. Now let's hear from some of Catsuit's friends with some messages for you. The Heart of the Dominatrix, Portraits and Interviews of Exceptional Mistresses. This book is about female domination. This book is about dark corners, both physically and psychologically. This book is for you, whether you're a beginner or have decades of experience with BDSM. If you're eager to learn more about power exchange dynamics or are simply interested in relationships and the aesthetics of this world. This book will change your perspectives. Be warned. Visit heartofthedominatrix.com to order your copy today. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Welcome to the Yoniverse. I'm Scarlett. And I'm Anya. The Flaming Yoni podcast is a celebration of the beautiful and unique expressions of female sexuality. From asexual to megasexual, from lifelong monogamy to relationship anarchy, from deep spiritual bonds of sacred union to spur of the moment flames. It is all infused with Yoni energy. Search for the Flaming Yoni on your favorite podcast platform. You will not leave the same as when you came. Are you curious about kink but don't know where to begin? (laughs) Or maybe you have a friend who, while they appreciate your interest in BDSM, they don't really understand what it's all about. You should check out Kink for the Curious. It's a fun little activity book with color pages and word finds, lots of silly puns, (laughs) Uh, but lots of solid... BDSM and kink information written by somebody who's been in the business for almost 30 years. Kink for the Curious, a BDSM activity book for beginners, written by Princess Natasha Strange, that's me, <laughs> is available on Amazon. Go get it now. We invite you to connect with us on social media so you can follow all the great news about the show. You can find us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1, on Instagram at WhatWomenWantPodcast, 
and on FetLife at www.podcast. And if you want to follow the host, that's easy as on Twitter, Instagram, and FetLife, he is Hi There Catsuit. And now back to what women and other wonderful humans want, presented by Dating Kinky. Welcome back to the program, joined by Mistress Tara Indiana, who, amongst other things, is the founder of the Dominatrix Hall of Fame, which started in 2021 at DomCon. Let's talk about some of the people who are in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, they all have amazing stories. Who was the very first inductee? Oh, well, that was uh, the first, uh, the first one was obvious, uh, Sherry Rose. And well, let's see, Sherry Rose and Belle du jour. Um, I, I have to say that when I was making my decision that they both were front of mind um, for different reasons. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Sherry Rose uh, is known for her long collaboration with uh, Bob Flanagan. Um, for those of you out there who don't know who Bob Flanagan is, shame on you. <laughs> Number two, uh, see if you can find yourself a copy of Sick, uh, The Life and Death of Bob, Man uh, Bob Flanagan, Supermasochist. Um, is an incredible book and movie um, that was incredibly influential for me. Um, I remember seeing Sick in the 90s uh, when it came out and how it really changed my relationship to BDSM. Because I remember at that point in my career as a dominatrix, I still had a lot of shame around what I did. Um, there were kind of feelings of like, is this unhealthy? Um, am I, um, am I um, you know, re-traumatizing myself? Am I traumatizing other people? You know, what is this? Is this PTSD-ish? Like what, you know, all the things, you know, am I broken, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we all in SM grapple with at some point. And anyone who says they, they didn't grapple with it a little bit, flying, you know, am I broken? And seeing sick and how kink and fetish, you know, because basically if you haven't seen sick, it's it's basically the story of Bob Flanagan, who, in addition to being a super masochist, uh, was also a very well-known uh, poet, performance artist, visual artist, and creator, very talented. And he also had cystic fibrosis. Um, and um, he, um, he was the first person to live past 30 with cystic fibrosis. Wow. He lived to be 43 and he very much um, attributed that to his SM practice and uh, watching him in the movie and just the way he articulated it, I realized I wasn't creating trauma. I was healing trauma and I was healing my own trauma and I was healing the trauma of others. And I don't want you to get me wrong, BDSM can be done in a very unhealthy, dangerous and unsafe way. And it can be the opposite of what I just expressed. There's a way to do it, right? But that just was such a lift for me. And Sherry was such an inspiration because here was a woman who was embracing being a dominatrix 
uh, from a generation where that wasn't even uh, a possibility of, of, of any kind, you know, um, it was really inspirational for me. So that was um, how I picked Sherry, of course. Uh, and, you know, and it was really important for me to acknowledge her because as I'm rambling on and on about how great Bob is, I am falling guilty and prey to the same thing the general public has done to her, which not acknowledge her as the full partner and muse of Bob Flanagan, um, who much of his work wouldn't exist with not from Sherry. So much of it was writing about their relationship and all that kind of stuff. And an incredibly talented photographer who documented the SM scene at a time when it wasn't being documented, and writer and performance artist of her own right, how she is just not acknowledged the way that she should be. Um, and so, you know, this little thing, you know, this little trophy is just a small way to, to just acknowledge her. Uh, just the, the incredible contributions that, that she has made. Um, to femdom and the BDSM community. Um, so she was the obvious, uh, an obvious first. And then Belle du Jour was an obvious first because Belle du Jour, because also dungeons sort of as we know them today, she actually um, uh, created the first one um, mm. because she had a dungeon called Belle du Jour's. Uh, she opened it, um, I believe it was in the late 60s, early 70s, or maybe I might be, I might be off. Let's say the 70s just to be safe. She was the first, and actually the Dominion was the second one. And what I mean by the first dungeon as we know them is before then, there weren't generally strictly houses of domination. There were brothels, and usually there was a woman who specialized in what was then called English sessions. <laughs> and then occasionally you had ladies offering English sessions out of their apartment. But that was it. There were no dungeons that had different theme rooms with a whole staff of skilled, uh, or not always so skilled, but a whole staff of dominatrixes, submissive switch and stuff like that. And she really had the first one. And the way that she opened it was she was actually a hairdresser. She had a beauty salon. Uh, and this was, I, I think it was in the 70s. And she was an older woman at that time. She actually got into the industry at the age that I'm at now. Um, and she had a beauty salon and she started getting the, she had this little room in the back where she could do stuff for her beauty salon. But she started getting these guys who wanted these transformations in her back room. Mm -hmm. And so she started doing these cross-dressing transformations for either cis men that fetishized cross-dressing or what were probably trans people who maybe didn't realize they were trans people. And she started making more money doing that than she was at the hair salon. She's like, let me just open up a place for this. And that was the first dungeon as we knew them. She started in her, I think she was in her early fifties. Um, she wrote a book about her life that you can still find. It's out of print, but you can find old copies of it on Amazon. And um, she was still in business and a big name when I entered the business in the early 90s. Um, and a lot of the great dominatrixes of 
the generation that followed came from her place. This is the other thing that's also lost with the loss of dungeons is lineage. Um, the lineage of who trained who and where they came from. So for example, one of the other inductees into the Hall of Fame was Ava Terrell. Are you familiar with Ava Terrell? I know the name, yes. Yeah. Um, so Ava Terrell was the first person to have an upscale dominatrix service where she charged a lot of money and was in a fancy neighborhood and that kind of stuff. Well, come to find out, Ava Terrell started at Belle de Jour's. Uh, so did Sharon Mitchell. Yep. Uh, so did a, a lot of the big sort of fetish porn stars of the 70s and stuff. They all kind of worked out of there. So there were a bunch of dominatrixes that started at Belle de Jour's, went on to open their place. Uh, and then the lineage continued. And you can actually, when there were dungeons, you could literally trace it back like a family tree. And you could tell, you could... You, it, when I had like in the heyday, sort of the golden age of, of dungeons and, and the female dom scene was the 90s. I think everybody agrees on that. 90s, early 2000s. And in the heyday of that, there were probably 30 commercial dungeons in New York. And you find that many in a major city, 20 or 30 dungeons. And if I was out somewhere or if someone came in to interview at my place, I could tell pretty quickly from talking to them what dungeon they started in. That's how, because you're, the first dungeon you work in, sometimes the second, like if you're only in one place briefly and it's horrible and you go someplace else better, those first one or two places, they form you. They shape how you see female domination, how you see slaves, like how you interact, everything. And like, for example, like, I'm not gonna say which ones, but like if someone worked at this particular dungeon and they came for an interview at my place, I might not hire them because I know that dungeon, everyone gives hand jobs, or I might mm. not hire them because I know all the girls in that place hustle for tips, you know, and I don't want that kind of grinding going on in my place, mm -hmm. you know, unless you know for a fact that they're leaving there for that reason and they don't want to be in that environment anymore, mm. but it forms you, you know, um, and like you can totally tell like the lineage, you know, even lineages like I could meet six different mistresses that uh, apprenticed with Simone Justice and go, yeah, that mm -hmm. those are Simone Justice, you know? I mean, and not that you, when you, when you apprentice someone, you don't want to make them into a mini need. You do want to expose them to different educators and concepts, but your Dom mom is always going to kind of shape you mm -hmm. in, in a way, right? Um, and that lineage is so important and that, that gets back to sort of the Hall of Fame. That's what I'm really hoping to do if I can build out the website is to have those family trees and those lineages documented somewhere. And Ava Terrell actually was inducted by a recent guest on this show, uh, Goddess Severa, which uh, she had yes. mentioned, she had mentioned Ava Terrell in uh, her episode and that's how I knew that name. That's right. And uh, did you know that Goddess Severa worked at the Den of Iniquity uh, when she was a baby dog? Yes, she, she did. Yeah. And she wanted me to say hello to you. As a matter of fact, we talked oh. just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Send, send my, I actually just saw her at Justine Cross's party the other night. But yeah. And that's another example. I can tell 
how much Ava Terrell impacted Gata Severa. Like I can see it in her style, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, that's another example. So, you know, started with Belle du Jour, Ava Terrell, and then, then we have Gata Severa. Gata Severa, even though she never met Belle du Jour, wouldn't be possible without Belle du Jour. Mm -hmm. And we've she also- She would have maybe still got it Vera, but she would have been a different one. Mm -hmm. I can see that. We've also had Olivia Kula on the show, um, mm -hmm. the Russian dominatrix. What a lovely yeah. lady she is. She is. She is really, and she's like, she's really warm. And she is one of those doms. This is a rare thing, but it comes up every now. She loves to play all the time. Not that I don't love to play, but like any chance she has to play, she's playing, <laughs> you know, um, she's got that gift. What was the most emotional induction that you had for someone who was actually there, a living member, somebody who was just so touched by the whole thing? Oh, I'd have to say Princess Kali. Um, she didn't even know I was trying to get her inducted for a few years. She didn't even know I was doing it. Because um, you have to have appeared on the Legends panel to be invited to the Hall of Fame. But I didn't want to tell her that, you know, for a, a number of reasons, you know. Um, uh, a, I wanted her to be surprised uh, when she was inducted. And you know, be like, you know, you should do the whole, you should do the legends panel because you want to, you know, not because you're going to be inducted. And our schedules didn't work out. It was like COVID. It was this, it was that. And and, and we go back a bit. We have, you know, I, I know her for some time. And so finally, um, she was able to do it last year. Mm -hmm. And so when she committed and I was like, oh, and by the way, you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame too. Mm -hmm. And she was just flabbergasted. I don't know why she was flabbergasted. I can't think of a living educator, aside from maybe Simone Justice, that obviously belongs in the Hall of Fame for more reasons than I can even enumerate. She should not have been surprised, but she was. And um, I inducted her, it was the same year I inducted Cyan, so that was kind of nice. So they mm -hmm. had a history and, um, I think Cyan did the induction and, and she was just tears, just, you know, and you know, she talked, 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 you know, so it just like <laughs> tears, talking, laughing. And, you know, she was, she didn't see it. I don't know why she didn't see it coming, but she didn't see it coming. And it was really, oh, you know, it was really emotional that last year that also happened. This is an interesting story. So uh, hold on a sec. Let me just look at my notes. So I make sure I get this right. So the other thing, now that we, we were in our second year of inductions, um, what that meant was that previous people could nominate people they thought should be inducted. And so I asked around uh, with previous inductees and uh, a number of people uh, mentioned Kathleen Hillier. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hillier, it's H-I-L-L-I-E-R. Mm -hmm. 
I, I didn't know who she was. And basically who she was, is she was the one that started the Chateau with Sir James. Now that's before your time, but you're, you must be familiar with the Chateau, yes? I know of or the not. name, yes. So that was a really old dungeon. Betty Page had worked there um, and it had a long history, but it, it had a mixed history. James mm -hmm. was not a very kind person to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, he's dead now. He, If you opened up a dungeon, he would call and threaten you. And he oh, actually boy. did fire the Dominion. This is not news. So, but, but he started it, uh, you know, because this is what happens with a lot of the older dungeons that were male-owned. They're started with a couple and then the woman gets pushed out. Mm -hmm. So actually the person who started the Chateau was not Sir James. It was actually Kathleen Hillier. And um, she passed some years ago um, and she never really got the credit that she, she financed it. She opened it. It was her place as much as his initially. And, but she went on to work at the Dominion for many years uh, until she passed away. And so uh, let's put that aside, and then I'm going to bring in another pick piece, which is sort of separate. So I have another mistress uh, who I'd love to give a shout out to, Mistress Madeline, um, who used to work at the Den of Iniquity on Hollywood Boulevard, but had left the business uh, to have a family and settle down. And when she was you know, doing that, she didn't want to be in the industry. And we had lost touch. And uh, about, I guess, before DomCon last year, she... Uh, kind of reached out to me and said, you know, my kids are grown. I really miss female domination. Uh, Want to get back in the industry. Um, like to do some coaching sessions with you. So we did some coaching sessions. And then she was able to come out for DomCon. Mm -hmm. And since she came out, we got to spend time together and catch up. And it was such a delight to reconnect with her. And I asked her if she would help with the inductions. Um, because, uh, you know, we like to have different people do the presentation. Anyway, long story short, I didn't know that Kathleen had been a mentor of hers. And oh, when wow. we did the action, I had no idea. She literally, and I have pictures of it, she burst into tears and accepted the award on her behalf and spoke for her. And it was really powerful. It was really powerful. So last year was was real powerful. Was real powerful. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's uh, I don't remember how we got here, but <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, uh, you mentioned Princess Kali, who will be with us on this program in two weeks. Oh, which awesome. is amazing that you had mentioned her. We had been reaching out to her for a while and uh, said we definitely wanted to have her. And so it will be in in two weeks. We have Azada Sin next week and then uh, uh, Princess Kali the following week. So that's a pretty good lineup for the next few weeks, isn't it? That is. So it sounds like you've had at least two Hall of Famers on your show, and I'm hoping more in the future. Well, uh, Mr. Cyan was a uh, uh, yes. guest on the show. So, yes, I, I eventually we're going to get through. If they're living, we'll love to have them on because yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I 
think that people appreciate the stories of the people that have set the foundation for what is today. And while things yeah. may have changed and while things may have uh, are in done in different ways, the fact is the people who had the courage at the beginning to be their authentic selves and get out there are such inspiration to those who are there now. Yeah. Thank you. And I look forward to uh, talking with you more about this year's class a little bit uh, later on down the road. And yeah. it's always good talking to you. I mean, this hour flew by. <laughs> Mistress Tara Indiana, it is always an honor and a pleasure having you with us. Oh, thank you so much. Mistress Tara Indiana has been so supportive of this podcast and my work, and it's my hope that we will be able to bring you the celebrations of the next class in the Dominatrix Hall of Fame as we honor the history of these great women. Here's what's coming up on the next edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. She's the matriarch whose work in Europe and around the world has earned her acclaim as one of the top doms in the world. She is the incomparable Izada Sin in an interview that is sure to start some conversations. And you don't want to miss it. Izada Sin, next time on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. A new edition of the show premieres next Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Mistress Tara Indiana for joining us for such a great program. My name is John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time. And I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Join us on Twitter at WhatWomenWantP1. On Instagram at What Women Want Podcast. For our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. And now, select shows are available in video format at youtube.com slash dating kinky. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. Well, hi there, Catsuit. This is Jacqueline Powers, and yes, I really am back, recording new hypnosis files again on YouTube, and also on Patreon. For the more adventurous fans out there. And John, 
I really enjoyed coming on your show so much and finding out that you had your very own experience with my hypnosis files. So, if you want to learn more about how I got started with online hypnosis, all you have to do is just listen to my interview on the What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want podcast. You all know I love my cat suits, and the ones that have never let me down come from the amazing winter fetish. I've had some of them for 10 years, and they're still going strong. Specifically made for fetish play, these suits come in only the best spandex or PVC with zippers made for action. You've seen them in the House of Lord, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia, and now these suits can be yours. And if you use the code www.spandexcat, you get 10% off your purchase and you support the show as well. And as always, I give you this promo because I believe in what Winter Fetish does. So visit winterfetish.com and use the promo code www.spandexcat and get the cat suit of your dreams from Winter Fetish. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Dan. Recently, we put together a brand new book called Hearts and Collars, reflecting 20 years in a power exchange relationship. It's 350 pages of what we've been living for the past 20 years. Indeed, and it's got chapters like communication, power exchange and spirituality, how to be a leader, high protocol, becoming a follower, rituals, the new porch time, victim, survivor, and thriver, power exchange and polyamory, submissive versus wife, the Practical Contract Guide, Relationship Shorthand, as well as other tools and experiences we've had over the years. Check it out at eroticawakening.com slash hearts and collars. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dawn. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, wherever you get your podcasts.